0: Everyone. Hello, everyone, and welcome hello, to... everyone, and welcome to Unsound on Sound, the podcast where we are unsound on the subject of sound. And when I say we are unsound, I mean we are of unsound body, we have unsound mind, and we are of unsound spirit. Thank you, and men. Um here's the thing. This week's guest, Mitch Renault, will be talking about Anne Southern's retuning, which uh, is a fantastic piece. And the recording for it is, is great. And so we're gonna include a clip of it here as you know. But there's this other thing that I I don't wanna put too much pressure on you, but uh, you know, what would be nice is if you could actually go to the link, it's in our show notes, and listen to the whole piece. Probably you must think I'm crazy for asking you to do that, but I swear, I I really think it's going to help you out in the long run. If you're the kind of person who's sitting down here and saying, ah, this oh, contemporary... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, Classical Canadian music podcast with sound effects, run by James Lowry. Let me listen to at least four episodes of that. Look, you're gonna be the sort of person who should probably just go ahead and listen to the full recording of Anne Southern's Retuning. Now. The audio I got from Mitch of his end of the conversation, well, it's got these interesting sudden increases in volume, uh, some sort of a glitch, I, I don't really quite understand how it could happen because it goes in one either the left ear or the right ear, so it's it's kind of trippy, but it is an audio defect and I'm just so aware that everyone's going to think this is like an effect that I added in, which I could probably do. I'm going try to do it right now, but I didn't do it. It's how he actually sent me the recording. So uh, I want you to keep that in mind while you listen to this excerpt of Ann Sotham's Retuning. renault um wh- how do we describe you um
1: yeah uh, man I, I, uh, uh yeah theorist yeah uh, yeah uh um,
0: yeah i don't think yeah i can um I, I, uh man uh, um uh sommelier I, I, uh in activity i don't know if you're allowed to call yourself that or not uh yeah i don't
1: think about (laughs) myself myself i never did think about myself as a sommelier because i wasn't working in a restaurant context but that's also far from germane for what we're talking about today so yeah i uh i'm here on the unceded territory of the esquimalt and Songhees first nation and what's now known as victoria bc i would describe myself as a composer uh, as well as uh, yeah, a little theorist and curator. I run a small concert series with Cheto Barone and Jeff Martin.
0: I just want to point out that wasn't some sort of audio fiddling on my point. Point. My point. point. My part. That was just a,
1: a, a natural mistake in the audio. This is with Cheto Barone and Jeff Martin, called Up the Now. Um, and yeah, we do occasional events, some of which are on the internet, some of which are in person in concerts, although it feels further and further away, but when we get to do concerts in person, but it'll happen.
0: It's going to it's gonna be a while. I don't know out there how you're doing. How, how's it going in Victoria with the whole COVID thing?
1: Yeah, we've fully reopened now. Uh, well, I shouldn't say fully. We've reopened to the point in which... Uh, you can go to a restaurant, but you can't be in a place with over 50 people and distancing so important. Our case count is gradually going up a little bit uh, because of that. We have like 50 new cases on the island mm. uh, as of Friday, the end of July. But uh, in the greater scheme of things in B.C., we're pretty lucky.
0: Yeah, I hear some people are already starting up concerts out there, which I think, you know, if everybody could sit far enough apart and, you know, you can get some reasonable amplification and do it outside. I, I think it's nice. I think it's nice. Yeah, it's
1: hard. It really depends on the context of like what you're doing and what the music's like. Like some music, I would love to hear outside. Some I don't want to hear outside. It's hard.
0: Okay, so we are here to discuss uh, and Southern's uh, retuning. But before we get to that, uh, I, I have to ask you a question on a mutual subject of All interest right, of ours. Mars. So I know we we both, I know this, that we both follow Punch Drink, the cocktail online magazine on Instagram, right? I was just thinking about it the other day, but do they have a sort of secret, nefarious ideology around their framing of cocktails that... That needs to be carefully
1: dismantled through consideration. I knew there was a reason you brought up the whole Sommelier wine industry thing. I mean, yeah, I think Punch Drink, in the, if you look at their editorial staff and the the folks that are there, I'm thinking of like John Bonet specifically. Who's once again, this was not my fault. John Bonet specifically, who's uh, writes a lot of their wine pieces or some of their one of their big wine editors. Uh, yeah, I think they definitely have like a position in the cocktail world. Uh, I don't know if I know my American cocktail history well enough to really take that apart, but they're definitely invented, invested in the kind of, like, uh, a lot of the, like, California local ingredient wave, but then also just the kind of the rena- still in that cocktail renaissance of using uh, the best ingredients possible for you, but also there's that local dimension, but then also a little bit of that new wave like new processes uh, ways of like refining drinks like what you get in liquid intelligence or whatever so yeah i don't know i that's a rambly non-answer i guess but there's definitely they are an emblem of a certain part of the cocktail world of america and north america because it's a pretty small scene and i the mean day.
0: i don't know what liquid intelligence means is that the name of a brand or something
1: it's the name of a book that kind of, that came out, I don't know now, uh, probably over 10 years ago, I'd have to look. But it really, like, pushed the whole, uh, so in, if you look at, like, food, there's a lot of pr- um, more complicated processes of preparation outside of the kind of French traditional techniques, right? So using uh, reverse purification or, like, foam or stuff like that and taking those same principles to like, hey, what weird stuff can we do to move forward a very specific aspect of the mm-hmm. drink? Uh, so using specific types of acid, so like what's commonly referred to as champagne acid, which is a very specific chemical makeup, uh, and using that as a component as a drink or uh, fat washing, stuff I mean, like man, that. I used
0: to take uh, yeah. drugs and uh, rave out to champagne acid back in the 90s uh i i to to just describe this online magazine punch drink for our audience a little bit i feel and this is where the ideology comes from is that there's two truths truths that it tries to reconcile it posts things like let's find the best gin and tonic we're going to ask all these professionals to come in and post their specific recipe of a gin and tonic which is sort of a ridiculous sentiment to start with but you can't go around doubting the you know whatever they're going to be nerds about the cocktails that's what you sign up for but there's these two things that are going on one is this sort of I guess what you've described as liquid intelligence where it's like a lot of thinking has gone into the drink and you're supposed to drink and enjoy all the thought that went into it, right? This idea that like you're almost imbibing intelligence. And then on the other hand, there's this idea of this sort of authentic experience. Like, ah, oh, this is the real GNT. This is what you just want to crush back in the summer, just drinking it with your friends. And you know, it's not putting on airs. And always there's, they're trying to reconcile this idea of this, we're just cool, we're sitting around drinking cocktails, and then this other, uh, like, extremely um aspect to it. And, and I feel like that tension is, is so common in the 21st century, right? Like, especially, goodness knows, with music, where you're both trying to convince people that you've thought through everything very carefully, and then also that this is just sort of happening... And it's just this authentic expression of uh, music
1: making. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's actually, like, in the punch-drink context, a really good way of summarizing it. So you have, on one hand, the kind of the return to authenticity of a country who's gone through prohibition and tried to recapture a culture that ostensibly died over that period. And then on the other hand, you have this kind of investiture in process and progress. And I think that's actually maybe, like, a nice pivot point onto the Southern because, like, with all bands' music and this specifically, there's such a high investiture in process. And it's not so much of, like, that academic, oh, I need to justify what I'm doing because I've thought about it really hard, which you can certainly get. And, like, there's parts of the cocktail world that get like that and there's parts of the music world that get like that. But at the end of the day, it's a kind of an investiture in uh, process and of, like, a very much, like... There's a lot of labor to this. Like, I sent you the score. This is a handwritten score. Most, if not all, of her works are handwritten. Uh, And just the way she's working with material is, like, it takes a lot of time to do that process. Uh, And it would be the same with that drink. So if you're taking three days to do this very specific oxidation of a nut, which then you're going to extract from... Um, that is a a labor intensive and time intensive process Uh, it's interesting what you speak
0: about that process and all the efforting that's put into it because there are also several chaotic elements to this piece of music that may also I think give the recording a genuine sense of authenticity Uh, because you sent me the score so I've been looking at it so the performers just kind of going for it in terms of the repetitions, right? The scores is on it. Repeat this section two times. Nine, nine. Um, the performer here will repeat it, what, six times, seven times, sometimes one. And nine. based on my little bit of research here, Anne Southern kind of wanted this to be uh, a bit slower, or quite a bit slower than the way it ended up. So, what we have here is a performer sort of receiving this piece from Anne Southerm and saying I know the direction to take it and it's sort of hard to argue with the results because I think it, it's, it's a pretty spectacular
1: Yeah, I agree uh, completely I think uh, Rita, who's the performer of this is obviously a virtuosic performer and I think that's something that's interesting in Anne's throughout Anne's collaborations, So the background of this is that um, with Of The Now, we're working part of our Archipelago series, which we launched back in May, uh, which is just kind of finding a space on the internet to do uh, the type of curation that we would be interested in that would would do best on the internet. So rather than being like, okay, we have this concert, we can't do it in person, Uh, let's let's go go to the the internet. internet, But like, hey, okay. We can gather on the internet, what can we do here? So we... Did a session uh, reviewing Anne southern's electroacoustic music, and we invited a Hi. dancer Peggy Baker, who worked with Anne on a solo piece as well as some ensemble stuff at Toronto Dance Theatre and other groups. And then Eva goyan who is one of the one of the later champions of Anne's work. Uh, her and Anne worked up until the end of Anne's life in uh, 2010, but. Um, yeah, it's really interesting to hear through different performers the kind of the push and pull between what Anne. Uh, there seems to be very much a relationship between the pieces that she's written, and then once they get taken up with the performer, and it's not like she's written the piece and hands it off and expects it to be played as she expects. But there seems to be a lot of room for revision, um, yeah. and uh, openness to interpretation on the performers, because she has written some Tempe here, and it's interesting because. Uh, The Bach quote is the only thing that I think actually gets a specific set tempo in the returns, and then it's back to the 144 to 152 at eighth note. Um,
0: What do you mean when you say the Bach
1: quote? Yeah, the open section that refrains, I think, four or five times through the piece, uh, that's a quote from a Bach cantata. And... I don't know the genesis of all of this material, but when you look through the score, there's about, there's 25 uh, distinct sets of material. And uh, one of which is that bot quote. It repeats a few times through the piece that kind of opened. Uh, that's from one of the cantatas.
0: Oh, whistling through Skype. Yeah, uh,
1: I actually, well, it's one of my favorite things is whistling through Skype. And if you can get it where it picks up in the other person's speaker and feeds back, it's, it's, it's really lovely.
0: It's a glorious <laughs> musical experience.
1: Yeah. Uh, and the rest of these are fiddle, are fiddle melodies. So Anne was really interested in fiddle music. Uh, and I don't know whether these are borrowed or created, to be honest. Um, but you have, uh, when you minus the Bach, 24 different kind of fiddle tunes. And she's arranged them where they do repeat. And I, I was looking, kind of playing around with the numbers this morning. And I couldn't really make sense of it but uh, this is i mean she studied if you could go back to her time as a student in the 50s she studied with sam dolan um so she knows the ins and outs of like serial process which again going back to your drinks thing like that's a sam very dolan specific a labor-intensive way of working dolan with musical and material uh, and sam i think dolan there is some serial guy. Cereal sorry go ahead skype's doing a thing
0: oh okay i just thought you were like fuck this guy no um is Sam Dolan like a big man in serial music?
1: Uh, Is Sam Dolan, us. Just when guy? knowing from talking to different students uh, that went through the university or the um, Royal Conservatory of Music in at that time, um, yeah, Sam did teach the serial techniques. And
0: just uh, to the... put a little note in this, I'll say serial techniques. Is, is a way of organizing notes that sort of took hold in the middle of the 20th century that will tend towards atonal and dissonant-sounding music uh, traditionally, but, but doesn't have to. Anyways, continue. Yeah, I
1: think more abstractly, it's just like a way of looking at permuta- permutations of patterns, right? Yeah. Um, so, like, let's think about this a little bit more. Uh, flat and rather than thinking through a hierarchy of harmony we're just going to kind of all of the 12 notes will be ordered in such a way and then we'll think about these kind of rigorous ways you can process it and then and then there's different ways you can abstract from that in different levels of systems with more or less complexity but with Anne's music a lot of her uh, what you would get to is where she wrote a uh, number of piano pieces from a single tone row uh, and you see like Anne's tone row come up so anyways all I wanted to say is that there is uh, besides the process of working through these fiddle melodies and the repetitions, I do feel like there's some sort of serial organization between the quoted material, and I just haven't worked out what that permutation is. But there's a very, like, conscious relationship between the ordering of the repetitions. Um, like, just to go through the first section, you have, like, one, three, two, four, three, five one two four three four three five sort
0: of a slow tonal movement there as well
1: oh yeah no it totally start like it starts with that drone g in the uh the synth and then that goes up yeah there's there's harmonic motion here absolutely
0: i love just you you see the score and you're thinking this looks like a white note note type piece right one where we don't use accidentals and then just somewhere in the middle, we use like a few, like a few. And then we mostly go back to the white note thing. And I think this is uh, incredibly sort of Canadian approach. Like I was saying, I'm not going to just do a white note piece, but I'm basically going to do that. But I don't want to pretend that accidentals don't exist. I feel this is, if there's a common theme to Canadian music, it's often almost doing something extreme, but then wanting to <laughs> acknowledge that there are other options out there, but not not in a particularly disruptive way. Uh, I, does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I think the way I would think about it is that um, by clearing the field and where it is ostensibly diatonic, she's opened the resonant or register sorry she's opened the relationship between consonants and dissonance against that drone and what's happening in the synth mm. um so rather than doing it through notes and you're right there are a few variations like you go into g major she just does like the 505 thing at some point and there's a couple flats that happen a couple b flats where she's modulated uh again but yeah i think it's really when she's working with these long sustained drones so you don't have a lot of bass motion the dissonance happens more slowly um in the kind of the greater gestalt of the pattern as it relates to that to that drone which is quite rich and then there's an overtone structure there as well uh that relates to what the the viola is doing
0: yeah so this is a piece just to be clear if anyone needs it that we have a solo viola playing and then we have uh, drone playing on a tape part, and uh, just for whatever reason, in the contemporary music world, we use tape to just refer to anything pre recorded. You don't actually have to put it on a tape.
1: Although, in this instance, she did. She worked with a small, like, synth, uh, AKS Synthy, the kind of the small uh, suitcase model. She had a couple of those, and then uh, she was working to, like, reel to reel tape. So, when she says tape, she means it. So you're uh, saying... And this is interesting for her because, like, she doesn't write much acoustic music in the 70s. Um, there's some student works or earlier works that happened before then, kind of the 60s and the, when she was studying in the, the 50s. But uh, starting in, like, 69, if I remember my dates correctly, uh, she takes up with Patricia Dbidi, uh who's a major choreographer now and one of the founders along with David Earle uh, and... Dazzo cool um, yeah in the 60s you don't see much acoustic music from Anne in the 70s um, but what happens in the end of the 60s in 68 or 69 Patricia Beatty and Anne strike up a relationship through Sam Dolan Patricia approached Sam uh, to find a composer to score some of her dance works for this emergent company that they're starting um, with her david earl and peter randazzo uh and her and Anne, sam dolan turns patricia to Anne, and they meet and they start working together so Anne actually does like over 30 electroacoustic works uh with the toronto dance theater and others over this time and so when we see this piece happening in 85 she's gradually returning to acoustic music she started working on pond life and that kind of early piano cycle stuff. And then you see this piece as well. And this is interesting because it's one of a handful where she's working with, uh, still with the synthy as well as with acoustic musicians. Uh, Soon after this, she'll stop working with electronics altogether. Um, But this is, I I really actually quite like the restraint in the electronics to this.
0: Yeah, this one one aspect of this piece is sort of, uh, Mysterious to me, and I I don't necessarily mean that as a bad thing or as a good thing, is uh, there's uh, these beep boops that come in, in the synth part.
1: Yeah, she's pinging the filter on the synthy, so the filter's turned up, the resonance is turned up, and then she's sending some sort of, like, trigger into the resonant filter, and then the filter's tuned in such a way that it still has a relationship with that that low oscillator. Mm
0: -hmm. Which is uh, interesting, because that's not, it doesn't sound exactly like a drone anymore at that point, but then it sort of goes away again, and i wonder what it's doing there in the middle of the piece
1: yeah because that's where it modulates too right i think that happens in my memory if my memory is correct uh when she does the bach quote on uh in g major rather uh which is so she's modulated it to to the dominant Mm. yeah yeah it's it's an interesting thing because it's the it is very much a drone like it's the synth part doesn't have more than one voice, but then there are those little bursts of filter resonance being pinged that she's pinging the filter. And I, uh, yeah, it's just, it's pretty. Cause it's really, I think she, at that moment, she's interested in the kind of that resonance of that fundamental. And just by pinging the filter, she's picking out overtones within that larger kind of sound s- world of that low, low. Loop drone.
0: Yeah. I, and I think the drone, makes a lot of sense with the sound of these sort of fiddle melodies, especially how it's played super fast on this this version. Uh, I think there's a possibility in a piece like this to be like, oh, look at you, you're fancying up fiddle tunes so that they're acceptable for, you, for n- new music. But you really don't get that vibe here you really feel that what's going into the performances is is, is sort of very close to um, just getting, like, a bunch of fiddle tunes played at you very quickly, uh, spliced with, I guess, it's Bach chorales, though they don't necessarily read that way in any meaningful way to me, as much as a, a, just a slow melody that could also uh, be a fiddle melody
1: yeah it's just like a, a piece of contrast uh against the because you just have that like super fast super striated fiddle tunes which are really just like micro variation of arpeggios uh, yeah. like, it's really hard to make sense like if i had listened to this i wouldn't be i wouldn't have guessed just listening at it to it without the score that there is the number of different tunes that there are really yeah. i hear it much more of a kind of a, a shh wash of color with some shape to it um like well, there's differences it. when she's moving down into large leaps versus the kind of the tighter lines um and then there's just that large contrast then she uses the structure with the more open bot quote, right because it's not super striated it's much smoother but just to yeah. like i'm curious to the contrast with the reader recording um i've got my metronome with me dusted that off so she's looking for uh, four eighth notes in 144. Which is like, yeah, the recording's is is faster. faster than this. Yeah, But it's still pretty fast.
0: That's true. I mean, I was reading an interview where Anne Southern talks about this piece is called Retuning because it's sort of a remake of a piece called Tuning. Mm-hmm. Where she was focusing on these on these tunes, and one thing she brings up is at the speed that it's released by Rita, they do sort of completely lose their identity as tunes you know they they become completely textural at mm-hmm. least they do to to my ears, so there's this interesting aspect of the tunes have sort of become. Um, subsumed into a whole, uh, where you just sort of experience a degree of sameness or difference, uh, but the, which the, is nice because the
1: piece is still does the same things that it would otherwise. It's just now you're not identifying those tunes, and it's much just more about density and texture rather than identity of uh, melodic materials. I think the piece would work both ways. And it would actually be, I'd really like to hear this piece presented, uh, recorded by the same person in two takes, one of which is as fast as uh, Rita takes it, and then one of which, which is kind of more close to the metronome marking that Anne writes.
0: Yeah, it's so the the Anne Southern thing, Anne Southern definitely has a place in the Canadian... Uh, music Center. scene and i feel that she obviously uh, gets collected and with the minimalists you know uh of course writing the set of pieces called glass houses in, in reference to philip glass but her music for me never sits quite in that pocket it always felt a little more I don't know how to put it exactly, but, you know, you imagine um, an Anne Southern piece could be played very comfortably at an experimental uh, music gathering at a race space or something, while a lot of the direction that Philip Glass or other minimalists went in uh, puts them much more sort of, you know, whatever, doing your your piece for NY Philharmonic, which, you know, I, I don't know if Anne Southerm's music would be a comfortable fit for, you know, the, the sort of blockbuster classical music of it. Uh, do, do you have any sense of uh, where she places herself in terms of sort of genre
1: or uh, style allegiances? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I would never hope to be able to speak for and uh, she died before I was, was able, able to, to meet her. Uh, yeah, me too. But her music's always been important to me. And I don't, I, yeah, I don't know how to answer that. I mean, she is very much associated with the history of the Array space and the kind of the Toronto uh, new music community. She was aware of Philip Glass and Steve Reich, and she went down to Buffalo and heard uh, Cage speak and things but i think it's important in my mind to look at her coming up at the same time as these people it's not like she's 10 or 20 years later and looking like oh yeah philip Dad glass did some neat stuff but she's really coming to these materials through her own way and it's not uh so much a memetic process for me is it's just kind of finding a way of working and yeah she certainly was aware of other folks and what they were doing but i I think it's really done in her own way. And I think your your point about it uh, being interesting on a concert program, Like I'd be really happy to hear this against some of the other like Howard Skempton or set-aside Michael Parsons music, some kind of much more process-based uh, material. But uh, one thing that comes up in a few interviews with Anne is the way that she thought her music represented uh, women's work and the kind of the life-sustaining... Uh, processes that are done day to day with the hands. So she talks about it in terms of like weaving or knitting. Uh, So there's this whole other dimension as a kind of a feminist music, uh, which she isn't super loud about it, but she's definitely uh, is thinking about it as a political of a feminine practice. But it's very much about the mechanical in the way that I read those interviews of the kind of the time the things that take time and sustain life. Uh, are really important to her, so she comes to this pattern music from a very a very different way, uh, which I think is important to to remember in in looking at it
0: yeah that's that's interesting. Um, it's not really a sort of revisionist take on minimalism at
1: all, just sort of working with the same ideas at the same time uh, yeah and I but I do think you're and I don't I never been able to think clearly about this but I think your point about it being a her being a emblematic emblematic of whatever Canadian music might be is a good one because she is working as a Canadian composer and she's one of the our kind of first among others like Violet Archer um, and folks uh, visible Canadian women composers and she's very important throughout the history of Canadian music both as a teacher as well as a Uh, a composer and a philanthropist as well um but that she's working with fiddle tunes as her material which is if you go back through canadian folk history or uh, folk music that that's that's a very important thing so that she's finding space to balance her own musical reality with what she's doing in the concert hall i think is also interesting uh which i guess then you could cast as a, a similarity to philip glass with the rock music and things and finding a way to make space for what they're doing with popular music in their own in their I own. I was practices. trying
0: to pull up this piece of yours that I believe you sent to me, but as far as I could tell, if you sent it to me by Gmail, that uh, Google has decided that it shouldn't exist. But I believe you wrote a piece for double bass and drone, where the instructions are pretty much just try to become the drone. Am I remembering this correctly?
1: Hmm yeah it's if it, there is a small bit of notation but it's only like a single stave in the pitch material of the drone happens within uh f- the space from kind of a a flat to a uh to a b flat so it's all just within a whole tone and moving within that space and the drone is uh this kind of uh there's a static sine tone and then there's a sine tone that's slowly gl- uh moving uh from about if i remember right 103 hertz to 110 hertz so it's a, again a pretty small uh pitch space uh and what's happening is the, the all of that bass in that whole tone is sat within the wolf tone of the bass so the sound is in now a very uh kind of precarious wolf position where it's yeah so it's a it's a place in the instrument where the sound will break up um so it rather than just keeping the normal harmonic content of a single note, uh, it's quite want to have a lot of wide shifts of timbre, but then also sometimes will break up into a different octave and uh, different partials will come out. So it's just a really unstable part of the instrument. And it's something that performers and instrument makers will work to, uh, to balance. So you don't, you don't hear the wolf tone. You don't sense that you're playing within the wolf tone. It kind of sounds even, but I think it's, it can be quite an interesting space because you really get the materiality of the instrument breaking through where it's jumping or the timbre is shifting. Um, And when you set that against a kind of a static sine tone with the glissando and you get the beating from that slow glissando and everything's in a very tight register. Uh, So the player is basically learning a way of, uh, sorry, the player being Dave Reedster, who the piece was written with. Uh, Dave and I were working on developing a means of playing where he's responding to that beating, so he's changing the weighting and the speed of his bow in response to the, um, to the, uh, to the beating of the sine tone track. So it's really setting the relationship between the bass coming apart uh, in this wolf tone register in terms of the pitch stability, uh, the way Dave's interacting as a player with bow weight and speed and whatnot, and then the the beating and the sine tone, the back track, backing track. So you, you would say he's
0: he's <laughs> he's becoming a wolf tamer, really. Yeah,
1: you could say that. Because wolves are
0: also <laughs> unstable. I don't know if you've ever met one, but they uh, they can turn on a dime. My uh, I don't know if you remember this, but my mom always used to grow up on a farm. <laughs> It's such a, such a weird way I, to I phrase that, that idea. Yes. She always used to grow up on a farm. And I remember my mom, she's like, you can't go out at night because of the coyotes, which I associate with wolves because I, I like to just mush things together. And she's instilled this fear of coyotes in me that is just completely inappropriate for my context as a grown man. Um...
1: Well, you, I don't know. Every now and again, you hear you of do. a coyote in the high park. My, you know, I would say
0: my mom. I would trust her to just punch punch him out with her bare hands, because you know she's got she's got the will and she's got the hatred of coyotes, and mm-hmm. that has been passed down to me.
1: Well, she's, she's not gonna, always going to be it's there. true. Though, I'm going to have to grow up and learn
0: how to how to handle myself. Uh, let me ask you about something else that is not diodes. So one thing I was thinking about in this piece is, so you're working on, uh, you're working on your own synthesizer journey right now. Um, you have a, a SoundCloud page that has been your modular journal. Um, modular being a, a type of <laughs> way of working with synths, but you may have to explain to me, let alone the audience. Um, but Uh, what are you thinking about? What's been drawing you into the world of synthesizers?
1: Yeah, I think for me, it's uh, hands-on control and ability to work with sound uh, with a high degree of control. So not, yeah, it just, it gives me a, a way of working day to day. Like I don't live with a string quartet or whatever. So I don't have that kind of immediacy of, Realizing musical ideas Whereas this gives me a st- Living
0: with a string quartet I saw that on
1: anime one <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah, so it gives a high degree of control And a space to really work through uh, Sonic ideas um, A lot of what I'm doing is filtered feedback systems So taking a spring tank Like you'd have in the reverb of a guitar amp or whatever um, Getting it to self-oscillate through feedback and then using a filter to control the, the frequency of that feedback. Um, so that's what I've been kind of interested in recently and what I'm playing with. So it's interesting to see Anne working with the and the ways and the kind of the very, the composerly ways that she works with the synthesizers kind of because she's coming at this in the very early days of making electronic music with some of the first commercial synthesizers and so it's really interesting to me to see uh, with such a wide openness uh, to potential sound the restraint that she shows and the way that she chooses her sound material uh, because it could really in so many ways be anything and for her it's not it's very uh very constrained which i think is an important way yeah
0: i mean Something interesting is your recordings that I've been listening to, I'll probably put one in the background here, and that'll be nice, but they're very, very, very dirty and organic, if that makes any sense. There's a lot of, sort of, I feel there's an attempt to create a sort of activity, a somewhat unpredictable activity. Well, I feel that... Perhaps originally, and and now I'm making historical claims, but uh, the, the whole point of this podcast is sort of to feel free to say unsubstantiated things. Is <laughs> I feel there's this realm of purity in the synthesizers that when people are coming to it originally, is we're dealing directly with the very basics of sounds. You know, simple sine waves, and then we can build up from there, and we can control everything well i feel like your approach is like i'm just gonna sort of set up a situation for um, musical type activity to unfold does that make any sense
1: yeah that makes total sense and i think that's always what i'm striving for in my frost in my uh, composition practice is trying to set up situations for music to happen that will be that have will have some sense of liveness in the system so you have a sense of agency of whatever the musical material be whether it's the bass that's kind of coming apart in its own volition or the feedback system or whatever that's doing things that you don't expect but that you get some sort of agency from what you're working with so with the synthesizer um, yeah that's a really uh, acute observation of what I'm doing what I like
0: about them is often sort of a melody in them that wants to get out maybe it's just like a little harmony or a little leading tone yeah and it's been interesting
1: actually thinking about ann southern's music more and more over the last few months and like i have very distinct memories of spending a lot of time listening to her music especially on like lori brown's signal on cbc which would play at like i I think it was like nine or ten o'clock eastern i remember being in high school and listening to the signal a lot, and Anne's music specifically, and she being one of the first composers of new music that I kind of came to and spent time with, and I think there's a similarity there.
0: Okay, one, one moment here. So paint a picture of yourself in high school, We well, we we visit the young Mitrineau in high school. Uh, if I remember right, he would have mm-hmm. long hair,
1: and mm-hmm. perhaps be in a, a metal band, am I remembering that correctly? I think, yeah, you're right. I wanted to be in a metal band, but I ended up being in, like, a power pop punk band uh, that would describe themselves also as ambient, just because there was, like, a synthesizer that kind of always did something.
0: I like the idea of <laughs> a power pop, like, specifically cover band, where you're just doing uh, whatever, like, Chicago stuff or whatever, and then also there's long... Brian Eno style synth interludes at the
1: concerts. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of what it was. We covered AHA. You gotta uh, cover AHA. That was uh, that a good off. time. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, I was playing guitar. I was uh, realizing that composing was a thing. I was trying to find where I felt musically. Interested. I was thinking about uh, playing jazz at the time.
0: I always say that it's the jazz that you're not thinking about.
1: <laughs> yeah, but I so I guess getting back to the melody thing so yeah, I'm discovering people like Anne Sotham and spending a lot of time in that music, and I think with Anne, there's a through the way that she works with pattern and but then also with her later pieces like a simple line of inquiry she wrote with for Eve's uh going uh there's this kind of awareness of resonance and the space between the sounds and what's in between uh each note within either these kind of dense patterns of the music like we're looking at here or the much more open later works um In a very acute
0: sense of, because I've been playing that on my uh, parents got a baby grand and when I visit I like to plan it and I've been playing uh, some of the movements from simple lines of inquiry and I think there she has this very acute sense of how we receive dissonance um, and as that relates to the resonance you know each of the movements seem very they're very very close but just by sometimes changing the register of a note moving it up higher or lower by the octave you get into a place that dare i say feels emotionally darker even though basically the material remains unchanged or becomes very cheerful indeed uh, with just a, a few small changes and I, I think just getting into the emotional depth of uh, permutations is one of Ann southern's strengths. <laughs>
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it is uh, very transparent music. And I think for me, where I would draw similarity in my interests, which uh, I yeah, and what I've the ways, one of the ways in which I've been influenced by Anne is that so much of the musical stuff that makes this this special 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 to me special. Uh, special. comes out special. in between special. those notes. Special. So like you talk about the spaces that she opens in a simple line and. Um, the melodies that you hear that are trying to escape from the works that I've done, either for, for instruments or the synth, and it's just the idea of kind of melody coming out in between uh, whatever it is you think you're supposed to be listening to, but that there's like a kind of these other stratas of melody or sound or ways for, for things to come to come through, so yeah, I, I think that's... It's
0: always, always nice to put in the the idea that it could all go in a different direction is a nice thing.
1: Yeah, and I, I quite like the metaphor of veiling, actually, or palimpsest. But veiling just simply like the way that uh, in the using the synthesizer, I can have uh, something happening and sounding that you never hear. It's then being used where the spectra of that sounding is being used to refract another sound through so you hear sound two through the spectra of sound one Um, so then you get that like little impression of the veil from what's erased from sound one in sound two and you get that little bit of remainder in the erasure of a palimpsest which i i really like
0: what's a palimpsest
1: yeah it's a medieval subsequent to a medieval process of erasing a piece of paper to use it again or in that case vellum or animal skin or whatever Um, so you take what's written you erase and then you use that for the document because the printing press isn't a thing and paper is valuable but that metaphor for me of erasure and then rewriting uh, especially what remains is really really a quite fraught or um, quite fruitful uh, creative space, and I've thought about a lot of my practice in that way, of having something being pulled back or erased for something else to be written on top of, but then having that remainder, uh, an additional layer, yeah, it's just a nice way of thinking about it. So
0: are you telling me you don't have
1: access to a printing press? I don't have a, well actually I do have a printer right now, but I don't use Sibelius at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> I,
0: I don't have a, if I wanted to use a printing press today. I couldn't. So, like, really, has society evolved at all? (laughs) And speaking of affirming, we're getting into the final section uh, called unsound choices, where uh, we uh, bring in something that uh, we're enjoying, giving us possible artistic zhuzh or whatever else we feel like. Uh, Mitch, would you like to go first? Yeah,
1: I know hard to choose just one. I think maybe I would highlight Beatrice Dillon's record to workaround which was released earlier this year, maybe later last year. I don't know. I'm I very rarely listen to things right when they come out, so I'm usually late. Uh it looks like it was 2019. Um but it's a series, the whole record's marked at the same BPM uh i think like 155 or something which i if i remember correctly and she's just it's the productions so 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 good. good materials uh, to make the sound world, and then a lot of it's done uh, on the laptop, and she's really interested in the way that, so you can think of re- uh, reverb usually being used to create space, but she's kind of turned that on its head, where uh, rather than using it as this kind of lush uh, space-creating thing, she's like really cut the, the decay times back, so then you just have it as kind of an enlargement of rhythm uh, yeah the production on the album's fantastic the tracks are, are really really good and i think she's a really interesting artist uh, she's coming out of the uk mm.
0: yeah i i think that's interesting that it's all at one tempo i've noticed that something within the world of edm that perhaps is not as common outside of it is an extreme sensitivity to bpm where you mm. know you shift off a, a click or two and you're in a completely different genre of music and that you know specific bpm have the same sort of cultural significance as you know whatever like a a, a rondo form or a a jig would have in in traditional yeah i think that's music. a good
1: point and i and i guess actually i would throw one more out there that kind of like turns that on its head a touch but it also doesn't i've been really interested in Uh, producer out of detroit named Mm dakim uh and i mean i yeah i just i am i'm always pretty late to things i'm not gonna pretend that i've discovered this guy i think a lot of beat makers are have been losing their minds over what he's been doing for a long time but it's kind of like that sounds dangerous monk was born in detroit in the 90s and was a beat maker uh it would be kind of like what dakim's doing and he's doing a lot of interesting stuff with uh delay loops uh you can see i think it's through. not resident advisor, but uh, boiler room, there's like a house party and you see him do a set. And uh, so you just have this delay loop where you've set the start and the end points. And then he's just like hitting samples into that. And then so suddenly rather than working in this like super grid locked electronic space, it has this like fluency. So it doesn't have that same uh, stereo BPM, but then it also also does because like the delay times locked. Uh, but yeah, so then the, the feel in the pocket of those grooves is, is kind of ridiculous. That
0: sounds very cool. Okay, so here's my um, recommendations. Uh, this one sort of relates to Anne Southerman in a weird way. Uh, this is my anime recommendation for this season. It's uh, the Tatami Galaxy and it's sort of sibling film, The Night is Short, Walk On Girl by Masaki uh, Uasa uh, that's my best pronunciation I can do on that but it's interesting he's one of the few auteurs uh, that are sort of genuinely still working and relevant in the anime industry these days and uh, the Tatami Galaxy is a series about uh, in each 20 minute episode we have this guy go to college and make certain decisions about his life where he's gonna go what clubs he's going to join and then you sort of see the whole uh story of what happens during his four years at university and this happens over and over again uh for all 12 episodes pretty much with all these different variations and and there's this sort of complete lack of it's not an alternate universe type story really it's just a series of possibilities of of what could happen and different patterns reoccurring in permutations and the ordering of certain of those events in each episode sort of gets scrambled but in a very unschematic way which is interesting then he made this movie called the night is short walk on girl where the same sort of ideas reoccur to a completely different character which is sort of a very david lynch idea and but it's, uh, it's also all delightful. It's a comedy. So check that one out. Uh, my other recommendation is just this Dua Lipa album, Future Nostalgia. My, uh, my girlfriend, uh, recommended this to me, um, which you might or might not meet her at some point in this podcast, uh, series, but, uh, it's just a great freaking pop album. It sort of alternates between using uh, sort of pop conventions and the genre of both now and sort of the 90s and 2000s, and then opening up spaces for these sort of melodies that are just very quirky and uh, addictive for listening to. And uh, it's just a heck of a lot of fun. So that, that's my two recommendations for this week. And, uh, I guess that means we're pretty much done here.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for the opportunity to talk. It's nice to do this. We don't talk about music as much as we probably should.
0: No, we're too busy talking about, uh, Go, the board game, and... Cocktails. And with that, we cut to the end of our first season of Unsound on Sound I know it's only four episodes But get this you Tune in next week You might get a bonus episode Where where I get interviewed I get put on the hot seat Of course uh, I don't know exactly when season two is going to be But if you enjoy what you hear And, and, and perhaps you're in a position to, to fund more episodes You know what I mean uh, If you know what I'm saying about that fund uh, Then hit me up For sure hit me up I'll make them I'll make them all day. Uh, we would want to thank the Ontario region of the Canadian Music Centre for supporting on sound, on sound as part of their media production residency. Uh, you can follow the CMC on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit cmccanada.org for info. And, of course, thanks to all of my lovely guests this season, Becca Sims, James O'Callaghan, Amal Arulanantham, and uh, Mitch Renault. And, of course, thanks to Matthew Fava and... Uh, Thanks to all the free sound effect uh, websites as well. Anyways, uh, goodbye, and uh, keep uh, your eyes to the sky and watch uh, what you say, um, and listen to your heart. Bye!